Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on the panel, we have Ari Iyengar. Hello. Alan Weimar. Hello. I'm Sasha Wolf, and as usual, we have a special guest this week. And this week, we have Alex Burlaku. I hope I did that right. <laughs> Fine. Yeah, you got Great. it right. So why don't you tell our listeners who you are, why you're on the show, why you're famous, or maybe not? <laughs> well, I don't think I'm famous. At least I don't know about it yet, maybe. So I'm a machine learning engineer in uh, Moldova, in Chisinau. But, well, there is life after AI and all this stuff. And I also am very interested in distributed computing and concurrent programming and all this stuff. So naturally, a few years ago, I uh, discovered, in a way, (laughs) the Elixir language. And I really like it a lot. So mostly for my pet projects, I actually use Elixir. So regretfully not in production, but maybe someday when the machine learning ecosystem for uh, Elixir will be more mature, I will switch to it. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Yeah, I think that's probably something we want to talk about briefly today, at least because there is some machine learning stuff happening in the community, right? But uh, that's not why we invited you. You wrote an article about pattern matching and specifically in Elixir and like especially because you came across this thing, which is called Predicate Dispatch. And then you were like, oh, it actually reminds me of pattern matching in Elixir. And so basically this article is a bit about, okay, what exactly is pattern matching mm-hmm. and why is it cool and why should you care about it? And I, like, oh, maybe you can tell a bit of a story there, like how you, how you came to write that article and how you came to research Predicate Dispatch oh. in the first way, because that sounds very specific. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is actually quite specific. So I have a blog which I very occasionally write, and I think it was this summer, yeah, or maybe during the spring, I I don't really remember. But uh, I had a plan for quite some time that, well, I would like to write also a blog post about Elixir. And so I, at some moment, I decided, okay, I'm going to do it. So what should I write about? And also, during that time, I was researching a bit, uh, just for myself, stuff like uh, multiple dispatch, double dispatch, all this stuff. And then I, I found this term, predicate dispatch, which was like the most generic form of dispatch. And so I was like, okay, but it reminds me a bit of the way how pattern matching in Elixir works. Uh, and I, I remember also, I also asked the question on Stack Overflow, like, okay, can you, can someone tell me what's the relation between pattern matching in languages like Elixir or Haskell and uh, predicate dispatch? So regretfully, I haven't found an answer, but I assumed that these are more or less the same thing. And I also, during that time, I, I also wrote this blog post where I tried to show like the limits of this pattern matching in Elixir specifically. So that's how, how it all came to be. For me, the, the funniest thing that I discovered during that time was that uh, because of its Erlang roots, Elixir can also do pattern matching on binary data. And I was like, wow. Okay, now this one is cool. <laughs> yeah, I think I think a lot of this has to do with like it using it uh, Erlang being coming from like telecommunications, so parsing patterns yeah. and stuff like is something which it's useful to yeah. be good at in that context. So yeah, I, <laughs> I've actually like, have done that once in my lifetime. Like we actually fixed like oh. a TCP parsing bug in one library we were using, which was wow. using okay. all kinds of binary pattern matching. But that's like years ago. So have you used like this binary pattern matching in your projects anywhere? Like to more more no. than just no. 
No, but so one, two years ago, I was a lecturer at university and one of the labs that I gave to my students was to write a message broker and have it support both communication through just some basic TCP or UDP, but also to be able to integrate with uh, another MQTT broker, so kind of like an adapter. And a few of my students, so they didn't quite understand that they can use actually existing libraries. So they were uh, writing these MQTT packets and they were using uh, binary pattern matching for this in Elixir. And I was like, oh, God, you (laughs) you overcomplicated things, but pretty nice job, yeah. That actually sounds like like a nice little challenge to be honest yeah. <laughs> and, and i would expect that it's probably easier with binary pattern matching than i don't know like writing a whole bunch of code yeah then, so then shifting bytes yeah, yeah, yeah. in a more like i, I, I once wrote an ntp package parser in java is when i was studying and that was no bueno <laughs> <laughs> just for like because it was part of my studying and stuff like that but yeah okay um to get back to something like in your in your article is like predicate dispatch and like maybe to like give you an answer from my personal view i feel like predicate dispatch so basically like in the wikipedia it says like okay that we decide which method or which function to execute based on arbitrary conditions applied to the data and to the arguments and how i see it is like probably is it more of like a co-evolution that like elixir and erlang came came to the same useful pattern without knowing about this specific thing because Mm -hmm. also like the pattern matching and guard clause in elixir are a bit more limited like you can't do everything yeah you can't really do everything in there which i arguably probably is not the worst thing on the world but yeah, so to, do, to to give you an answer from, from my personal view on this, I, I think it's just a happy little accident, as Bob Ross would say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess like the, this is really the way how, how, we, how it happened. Because like Erlang was developed, as far as I remember, starting from 70s, maybe 70s, 80s, something like that. And uh, predicate dispatch, the idea was also from quite some time, but I guess it was indeed a co-evolution. Yeah, it's, it, it's the same with like the actor model and Erlang, like because like when fielding and, and uh, no, not raw fielding, cool, bullshit. No, actually, actor model, as far as I remember, it was initially developed as an artificial yes. intelligence paradigm from 60s. Was- and then the guy who developed it also then developed small talk. And then the guys who saw Armstrong, who was one of the developers of Erlang, he was inspired by the idea of small talk, but then yeah. did these actors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it was like all, yeah. all Australia. I've heard, like, was it Armstrong say that? I'm not sure who it exactly said, but like somebody from the Erlang core team said that they, they didn't know yeah. about the actor model specifically. They just came up with this way of measures passing an OTP and that like, it was an accident that it was that similar. And also like I've heard mm-hmm. that the folks who actually came up with the actor model are, are, are like, like technically Erlang is not really the pure actor model because and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So yeah. So, same thing, I guess. Okay, where where things evolved in a similar manner because it's a useful pattern to have. Nice, but uh, this uh, language, this ecosystem has so many happy accidents. I, I guess that's probably if you dig down in a lot of languages like that, where like somebody at some point heard something which might have been inspired by yeah. something or not, and then it ended up, ends up in the language. But yeah, let's get back to pattern matching. Um, is there like like any pattern matching stories you want to share, Alex or Adi or Alan, like where you use pattern matching where like, I can use it this way and this blows my mind? I think the the cool thing about pattern matching that I used before was like when I was checking to see if a user can join their own user channel in Phoenix channels where like you can separate the beginning, right? Where you can pay. It's really cool that you can pattern match out the, the suffix and match that against another variable. Mm-hmm. I use this style quite a few times and it's really, uh, yeah, I, when you show somebody this, the thing is pretty cool. I got a new guy working for me. He came from Python. He only loved Python for a while. I started to show him how Python starts to fall apart in some bigger systems. And then he started playing with Elixir and he just couldn't get the syntax. But then after a while, he's like, wow, this pattern matching is really awesome. And like, I really love it a lot. And it it takes a while to start getting used to it. But once you get used to it, like you don't want to stop using it. It's too much fun. Yeah, I agree with it. So for me, well, I, because Elixir is more like a bad project language for me. So I, I didn't do like production level projects in Elixir. But uh, I played with it quite a lot. So uh, I, I like testing languages like, okay, but can you do this? Or how would I do that 
in a, in a language. So I was familiarized with all the magic that uh, pattern matching can do, but it was really nice uh, seeing how my students were reacting to what's possible to do with pattern matching. For example, also one of my students, but not for my course, she decided to use uh, Elixir for uh, compilers and language design course. So she basically wrote, I think it was uh, like a state machine or something in uh, in pure Elixir, so without gen state. And boy, she was amazed, like, God, it's so easy. So basically uh, her implementation was like five times shorter and, and more clear than others in C++ or Java. Oh, yeah. And also for my labs, also students were doing like this big if else's because they were used to using just simple conditionals. And I showed them a couple of examples of how you can do that in uh, in Elixir. And then they started using it. And uh, I remember there was also a guy, he was like a Java fan. And initially when he started doing this uh, projects, he really hated the language because he wasn't used to it. And after we finished the semester, he told me like, you know what, Elixir is actually quite cool. I mean, it could be even cooler than Java. From from his side, this is quite a big praise. So, so yeah. Yeah, I can definitely tell that, like, now that I've used Elixir for a few years, also professionally, it's like pattern matching is the one thing where I always come back to it. If I have to write another language, I was like, oh, I really want to use pattern matching here. <laughs> this would be so much nicer and so much easier with pattern matching. And one of the biggest boons for me personally is if you really get used to it and like you also just started in a reasonable manner in like function headers that you start to to mm-hmm. read code much more quicker because you can just filter out okay okay this matches on that and this matches on that this is like yeah. not relevant to my particular case here for example i can literally mm-hmm. skip over this whole function body without having to care about it and if it's used not not too much because then it becomes also like super hard to read if you yeah. have like a super big pattern with like nested maps and everything. But if you use it sparingly, then it can really help you with like reading and yeah. flowing through the code. Where otherwise that might just be hidden. The particular conditional you might care about in that moment could mm-hmm. be hidden deep inside a function body with like a nested if else. And it really is something which which I feel helps with software development and helps with taming complexity and. I think there also like that, that statement is true, not even beyond Elixir, because just look at like what some other languages are now adding to the to 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 their language. Yes. I think Python even is adding some some structural pattern matching now in the newest version. Ruby, I think mm-hmm. so too, if I remember in version yeah, three. Yeah, starting Python three ten. Yeah, we're adding this. So yeah, that, yeah, I think I remember, but that might be totally wrong. But PHP is also having a bit of that. So um, a lot of languages now yeah. go into pattern matching because it is super powerful. Yeah, especially when you write some complex uh, handling of some very specific objects. If you have a way to destructure them and to check some of their internals, but in a cleaner way, it really helps in building these big serious applications. So yeah, it's it's a really nice feature. I remember I actually, so my path towards this functional approach and pattern matching and all, all the good stuff. So it started actually with Haskell, I remember. And it it was a bit hard to understand. Then from Haskell, it came to Scala because it was basically Haskell plus Java. So, And that's where I uh, I start loving this pattern matching. And when I learned Elixir, I already knew that it has this feature and I I more or less knew what to expect. Still, it when practically using it, it was much more fun, but uh, at least I, I wasn't that surprised, I remember. So it was for me like, yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah. So one of the things I was playing with, like, just this morning with pattern matching and uh, just multi-class functions in general is uh, so when you like do override, right? Just a def overridable of a function that you define in like a, a, a like a quote quoted uh, block, you have to override the entire function, right? You cannot mm-hmm. still choose to use the super function for like a general class without explicitly calling super, right? Mm-hmm. So I've been playing, and this is where it's so cool, the way just quotes work and the way the entire compilation works, like just, it supports a multi-class pattern matching. So you could, and I just realized this morning, what you could do is like, you could still define that overridable function, right? Do a def overridable and still have a before compile that redefines the general clause in that mm-hmm. function. So if you've overridden that function, yes, okay, without calling super, you still have access to the super without explicitly calling mm-hmm. the super if the arguments don't match 
one of your overridden clauses. My mind was blown. <laughs> so I'm curious if you guys have experiences like these. I don't know. Like to me, I, I didn't expect that to work. But yeah, I mean, and Sasha, we're asking like some uh, crazy pattern matching or uh, experiences. It's something that I just experienced this morning. So to, which is just to make sure that I get this right. When you do dev override, but maybe for somebody, for like some of our listeners who are not familiar with Elixir, basically like you can, there's, there's this using thing in Elixir, right? Where you can use another module right. and that basically executes a macro. And then inside of macro, you can, for example, define a bunch of functions inside that right. use it, a module where you're using. And then you can also say, oh, dev over, like overridable, dev overridable these functions, which basically says, okay, if the person who is now using this module defines that function themselves with the same name, and then use like the version this person used and not mine, I wrote here in that macro. And I was always under the impression that like the original completely vanishes. I mean, I think you also said something like that, but in some cases it like doesn't. I mean, I know I know it can invoke it with super. Right? So when you have a function, when you do override it, and then you you call super in there, you call the original implementation, which. To be honest, I think I've never done. I know that it's, it's possible. I think, but I can't remember it ever, ever having to use it. Oh, wait, no, I, I've used it in Phoenix controllers. That's like the only place where I've used yeah, it. Yeah, I've used it in plugs quite a bit, uh, the super part, like plug builder module yeah, okay. that allows you to build a pipeline of plugs. Yeah. Like that's that's pretty neat. Like, But yeah, you can, I don't, so once you've overridden it, it's gone, yeah. right? Without explicitly, but you can define it before compile, right? Which again, uh, before compile gets executed at the very end of the compilation of the module, right? Yeah. And that before compile, you can define that function, whatever this, this function is called. And all you do is def call arguments do super. So that ah, clause yeah, gets yeah. added to the bottom of your module yeah, 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 okay, no, and it. it works with pattern matching, right? It's, I was like blown. <laughs> that makes sense. I don't know. Yeah, I have used be the before compile hook to add like a general clause function for like some some stuff. But yeah, I have never considered to do it. That's super. That's okay. Yeah, that makes it make sense. But now we're getting like in the nitty, some nitty gritty parts of metaprogramming, to be honest. <laughs> so, sorry about that. Didn't mean to take us there. Sorry. So, so if we lost you, dear listeners, just complain to Ari. It's his fault. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Like maybe to get back to like this also this being wowed by pattern matching, there's not specific thing which like wowed me at any point, but like I feel like there's always this this journey of pattern matching when you learn it, right? Like where, where you first you don't really use it at all because you don't get it basically, and then you understand okay how it's working, and then you completely overuse it. <laughs> so like <laughs> you have like functions with like nested maps are like like three levels deep, <laughs> and then it's about you're like okay now it's hard to read. Like you come back to that code you've written I don't know like three days ago, and you're like what the fuck did I think back then? I like, oh, what's happening here? And then yeah. you start to boil that down. It's also like the, the, the evolution of usually see with like people I mentor or people like I work with, which learn Elixir maybe as uh, on the job, that it's basically always the step of like, okay, first, hey, you can do some pattern matching here. And then they do that. Then they realize it's cool. And that the next pull request is like, okay, maybe don't use that much pattern matching. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. I mean, I think it's it's uh, it's happening with uh, any nice feature of a language or a framework. So you first use it, then abuse it, <laughs> and then you learn your lesson. So I, I think something similar happened to, for example, uh, Ruby with monkey patching. Oh boy! Yes. Uh, <laughs> Lisps. Yeah, with Lisps, with all the metaprogramming in there. So I thought the big one was method override or method missing. I think it was the one where yeah. everybody was yeah. abusing yeah. the crap out of it and people were really upset. <laughs> did, did you know that there's actually like a method missing thing in Elixir? Like you can do the same thing, but it's like slow and everybody is like, no, don't. <laughs> I think I've heard about it, but I never actually like bothered to search. So because uh, during my main job, I'm using Python, I actually... I think I have a project where I implemented something similar to method missing, but I, I use it very sparingly. So. Sasha, you said there's method missing in native Elixir. It's not called method missing, but there's like like a hack which is like inherited from Erlang where you can basically do the same thing, but it's like it's slow and you like just don't. <laughs> just I, just I, don't. I, I, you're not talking about apply, right? Huh? I don't mean apply. There is like you can basically define a specially named wow. function, which then gets invoked when you yeah the same as method missing, right? Method, method, to, like, to explain it real quick, method missing basically does gets invoked with like the name of a function, and I think the argument is as list when on an object in Ruby you call a method which is missing. That's, that's how it's but it's got method missing. And there's a similar thing on Elixir modules, but I don't remember the details of it, and I'm not gonna put it in the show notes because you shouldn't do it. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, it's still like out of curiosity. Anyway, yeah. Uh, thanks for mentioning it. I had never heard of it. Like maybe let's actually go down that rabbit hole of like weird little things you might never heard of. Because there's also like, when you, when you, for example, pattern match on lists, right? Um, you always, unless you have this this pipe operator where you say, okay, the, the tail of the list should go here. You always have to specifically. When you say, for example, it's three elements long, then you always get the match error, right? Where you say, okay, my list is maybe only two elements long, or my list is four elements long, and now the pattern doesn't match anymore. There's also a function in the kernel, which is called destructure, where you can, for example, say, hey, I, I want to match on the first three elements of a list, and then I say, okay, destructure X, Y, Z, and then I give it a list that's like 10 elements long, and it still, still work. Like the structure basically is like a like a safer version of list pattern matching. I've also never used it, but it's but it's there. <laughs> Everybody's having really from the drugs in their face. It's like what the f- <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's like the bottom of the iceberg. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I never knew about this, but to be honest, it's not too bad because even if it's big, you could just do the regular destructuring. And even you could still do like one, comma two, comma three, and then you could do a like then you could do the cons operator so I have to tail out yeah, the end if I remember. The structure also works if, if there's less the elements on the list. So if you like match on the first three elements and there's only like mm. I don't know, like one or two in there, it will still mm-hmm. work. And the, the values will be Yeah, low. you're right. Yeah. So but it always gives you a tuple, which is weird. I, 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 I don't weird, think it I gives think. you a tuple, it's more like of the example where they use the variables in the in the no, no, this I'm looking at the example right now, and you pass in two lists, like you said, XYZ, and you get back a tuple with, with XYZ. That, 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 that's just the example of them using the values to like have the, the documentation test, right? The doc test to basically test it. Mm-hmm. So, then how would you be able to change the data structure then if you don't have a tuple? I don't know, I don't understand what you're saying because it seems like it has to give you back a tuple. What, what the structure does, it, it, does, it doesn't match. It doesn't match. So, like, they use X, Y, and Z, and now X, Y, and yeah. Z are bound to the values of the list. And then they're using X, Y, and Z instead of a tuple to test against the values. But yeah, we can actually put that in the okay. show notes. People can check it out because I don't yeah. see a reason why that should be avoided. <laughs> Yeah, the other thing too is actually the kind of interesting thing too is what's the difference between destructuring and pattern matching? Because there's a lot of languages that have destructuring, but not necessarily pattern matching, which seems kind of similar. Like JavaScript has that idea of destructuring. Rust has that idea of destructuring. A lot of different languages have this idea of destructuring, but not necessarily pattern matching, which is interesting. I think pattern matching like implies that you can also, so you're matching also on the type. I mean, for example, in Scala, when you do this, pattern matching, you you can just like match a list or a tuple. You have to specify the type, and unless the type is not the same, it just won't work. And the structuring usually is for my more primitive collection types, at least from my experience with Python and JavaScript and other stuff. So if you have something primitive like a dictionary or a list or a tuple, you could do that. But if you have something more advanced and more specific, you just want that. Well, maybe well, the, maybe for JavaScript it will work because everything is a, is an object in there. But I would even go a step further and say it's not only about type bits, but in pattern matching you can also match on certain values. I think that that's, that's yeah, and, uh, and that also yeah. And like that's not what the structuring, for example, allows you to do. You can't say like in JavaScript structuring, I don't know, like the second element of a list should be. Too. Like that, that's not something mm-hmm. Java should support, but that's something you can do in Elixir. And the like, destructuring is more okay. I know the structure, destructuring, I know the structure of the data, and now I want to get a certain part of that structure like out. For example, mm-hmm. I want to get the value of a certain property. And that's how you can use destructuring. And like pattern matching in Elixir is basically like a like destructuring on steroids, you could say. <laughs> yeah. But you can also do it's, all of that, like, but you can do a bit, you can do more. It feels a bit like first destructuring, and then like it hides a couple of like ifs and uh, and all this stuff yeah behind the scenes, and you just feel like oh it does magic. <laughs> I think a lot of that that is actually happening. For example, in JavaScript, if you like transpile it to a lower target, right? You say okay, I want to actually target Internet Explorer. What's his name? And now that actually compiles it probably down to like a bunch of like, if else has it, has it a value, that's yeah. nothing value, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, the other thing that's kind of cool that also helps too is guards. I think guards really make uh, a lot of things much better. Mm-hmm. But the annoying part about guards is that you don't really know exactly what you can and cannot do. I think now things are a little bit easier. I forgot what changed, but before it was like, well, can I use this? Can I use that? I can use isnil, but isnil is a function, but I can use, like it was very confusing in the beginning, but uh, it's much better now. But yeah, that's definitely the, been super helpful. I think guards are used during uh, like like before runtime 
basically. So you can't uh, have uh, arbitrary conditions in there. I remember a few times I wanted to write like some custom guards, which were checking like with a regex the contents of a string. So if a string matches the regex, the guard should, should be okay. And I remember like I couldn't do it and it was a compile time error or something like it just didn't like it. I feel like guards could be a bit more powerful, but uh, I remember also reading that they are specifically not that powerful because the idea is to make them fast also. So if, if they would be too complex and and could execute arbitrary predicates, it could uh, slow down the whole thing. Yeah. yeah, there's quite a bit of limits. Also, if I remember correctly, there's like a limit of how many guard clauses you can have, which maybe doesn't sound as like, why should I care? But if you, for example, use an in, which is like a supported thing you can do in a guard, like I don't want in a list. And I give, for example, like list with like over 100, 200, 300 elements, then you can easily hit that limit. I think the limit is like 260, mm-hmm. 56 or something, something like that. It's surprisingly low. Mm-hmm. And like the in actually compiles down to like a bunch of this or this or this or this or this. <laughs> okay. So this is what the Elixir compiler does for you. So in theory, if you if you want to use this guard on a very very big uh, list, so it will just like give you a compile time error. Yeah, so? like I mean, the, the right side of the in and, and a guard has to be a compile time has to be de- determined to compile time. So if you like, I don't know, like do some metaprogramming, I don't know, load something from a file or whatever, and then basically put that into your list at compile time and use that in guards, then it, it in theory, that can blow out. Mm-hmm. I've had that happen to me once. I don't remember the exact context, to be honest. I remember I had something where I wanted to pattern match a key out of a dictionary in a function mm-hmm. head, and it just wouldn't work. So I had like, this is a long time ago. I think I passed in a value and I wanted to also match it because if you have the same variable name, they have to equal the same value. And so that's what I wanted because that one was already a key in a map in my state in a gen server. So I wanted to pass it in, pattern match that, but pull out the value for something. And I couldn't do it. That was uh, super annoying. Adi, looking like confused. I, as far as I remember, you couldn't do that many years ago. And that's something that's changed since then. Well, well yeah, because it's a state in a gen server, you said, right? So it's like, right, I mean, I don't know if you can like, access a gen server in a guard clause. No, I'm not talking about guard clauses. I'm talking about within within my gen server, I wanted to pass in. So this was related. I think I talked back when Sophie was on the show. Like I'm user with ID one. I want to reserve uh, more tickets, right? And so I wanted to pass in my user ID, the amount of tickets I wanted to resume. And also I have like a, a simple map as my state in my gen server that holds all the ticket values with the user ID being the key and then the value of how many tickets they reserved to be the value. And so I would just pass it in with a message and I want to say, okay, just easy pattern match it out. And then the next clause would just be, if it's not there, then insert it and like that, right? That's what I wanted to do. Something something, something similar to that, but you can understand like how I that see. would make sense, right? I want to pattern match that out, grab the value and then like plus on it and then reinsert it back in. Mm-hmm. That's so like me, an, I, mm-hmm. So in a handle call, you're trying to match for the state, like present yes. to something in the state and that did not work. It didn't work. Wow. Mm. I'm pretty sure, like, you would think it would work, but I think yeah. people also talked about this, and you said, no, no, you can't do that because of something. I couldn't remember. Huh. And m- maybe something's changed, or maybe I remember wrong, but I remember something with pattern matching in a map with the same variable name you couldn't do. You cannot match on the keys with, like, a variable. It's maybe that what's your, what you were trying to do. That's, that's not a thing you can do. Like, you can't, for example, like, I mean, usually what you can do is, like, you, if, if you, you, use you can pattern match, like, if you had the atom, and you, or you had a string that was defined in compile time, you could yeah. do. Yeah. But what I was trying to do was a dynamic variable that was being passed in yeah. and still matching a key. So the same name at the same time, I wanted to match that, which it, you just cannot do. Okay. I don't think that's something I've ever tried. So maybe just never yeah, ran, ran against it. But in, in, there are all these like little edge cases, right? Like, like one thing you can do, for example, is like you can use a variable multiple times in a pattern match. And then like it will basically force this value to be the same everywhere, which is super useful sometimes. I've actually used that a few times. But again, like for example, you can't say, okay, I want to match here on the value A, and then I want to use that as the key in the map over there. Like that's not a thing you can do mm-hmm. in the same pattern at least. Right? Of course, you can then, I don't know, in, function, in the function body, go ahead and use the variable to get the value out. One thing you could not do until very recently is like get a value out of a map in a guard, for example. But that has changed recently. Like there's a new function which was added uh, in Erlang 20. 
I don't know, OTP 122, web get. Now you can basically also, which is now used in, by Elixir to also do um, allow a dot annotation in guards. Like you can say user.id, for example, in guards, and it will work, which it, it wasn't possible before. So there's all of these small little increments happening in, in, in the back and in the backstage, which like make guards and make patterns more powerful. I still remember like when I started Elixir, I think that was a version 1.2. Free. It was definitely before the uh, formatter came in life, and I think that was 1.4. And back then, when you wanted to define custom guards, which we wanted it to do at one point to simplify some logic, you actually had to write like a macro. And then you have to be very careful, like what you use in that macro, because like only certain things are allowed inside of guards. And now, since 1.6, there's also dev guard, where you basically say dev guard when, and then you basically just write a regular guard, mm -hmm. and then you can reuse it. Which like all of these small things, which make your life easier and make make, make things simpler, based on on the real world experiences people are having with Elixir and pattern matching, and I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I I actually like I'm I'm trying to think of uh, some feature in Elixir. Of, I mean, my more mainstream feature, which other languages have and mainstream doesn't, and I can't really think of it. So maybe. I've heard a lot of uh, like complaints that well, Elixir doesn't have some while loops or or for loops like well, well for loops it does have, but for example while loops it's not so obvious. And then I'm thinking like well, but you could in principle write a functional so a, a while loop as a function basically. So you could insert these conditions and state and all this stuff. I mean it may be a bit more cumbersome, but the, the language itself, so it, it's not really a fan of while loops and these mutations which are happening basically in a while loop. Other than that, I really can't remember anything. Yeah, also, like, when you get to that point where you might want to write, like, an infinite while loop, it's usually because you're not that familiar with the ecosystem or with, like, best practices yeah. yet and, like, you don't really know how to do it else and, like, you rather reach for something like that because that's how you've always mm -hmm. done it. Usually, in that case, yeah. it's not always, I guess, but usually there is like a way to do it more idiomatic in Elixir, for example, by doing recursion or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. There's also like you can uh, rely on streams in some certain situations where, where you might want to loop to, through mm -hmm. things. I've, I definitely have done that a few times, but that's like mm -hmm. there are basically different tools for the same jobs, which are more long and more appropriate yeah. for the design constraints in the language such as Elixir, which is more functional. Yeah. I think I think a bit of a problem with Elixir, I think it doesn't have this uh, variable uh, length argument lists, so you, you have to rely on lists, basically. And I think it's the same with, uh, so like in Python, with keyword arguments, which can be like arbitrary keyword arguments, and then you have to rely on this uh, idea from... Uh, How's it go? From uh, Ruby, where you're just having a special dictionary and you know about it and you just insert values. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that might be a bit of like, especially for me, but I'm actually used to using Python. So I feel like more natural to have just this uh, double asterisk keyword arguments and just pass stuff. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, Go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. I think that's actually a very good good example because i mean uh, the reason being is that like the arity of the functions is part of a function identity so that's yeah. like why, why you can't do that why you kind of arbitrary length arguments yeah but pattern matching won't work yeah, normally. yeah exactly and but the thing like i think this example is, is great because this is also like like a pitfall for a lot of people because when you do like these these keyword arguments which is like syntactic sugar basically for a list right like you for example when you when you match on that you have to keep the order in mind because it is a list it's a list. It's not a, it's not a map. It's not a dictionary. It's a list. And that's like something yeah. a lot of people trip up. I mean, I, I, I don't even have to think about it anymore because I just know 
I've done that so many times. <laughs> I don't have to think about it anymore. But it is like when you think about it, it's like a weird little restriction that, that you have to put the keys in exactly the right order. Like, so if you are only interested in the second, maybe you still need to have a first there and then like do the underscore to, like, yeah. to not not to ignore it. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's especially also trickier because, like, I mean, uh, you know, there's like a lot of overlap with Ruby, right? And in Ruby, there's no keyword, right? Like the 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 keyword arguments it looks it looks like the hash yeah. in Ruby, right? And they don't need to be ordered. Yeah. And that's if you're coming from that, you're like, wait, wh- why is it this matching? But yeah, it's yeah. yeah. People actually trying to match on the end. I, I've never tried that because I always treat that as yeah, it's similar to like Ruby, where you can pass in any order. And I always see people using like keyword.take or something. I forgot what the different keyword is. There's a whole keyword uh, module, right? Where you, where you can get default values and all that yeah, but, but, stuff. That's why I, you actually try to better match on the, well, on the order. I, I usually don't because it, that I, that this restriction is there. But I would expect that this if this restriction wouldn't be there, I would do it a lot more often. I mean, now if I want to do, really do that, I would I go for a map. Or in some cases, like a struct, if I know a certain data shape, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I, I see like people new to the language and doing code reviews that they try to do that, and that's like a pitfall. Yeah. It happens when, like, say you already have a clause defined for where you're matching for only one key, like say default true or default false, right? Yeah. And then a new developer comes in and they're like, oh, let me add another to this match, and then they because they're new to Elixir and they don't realize that oh, that's not how it works. The order needs to be identical. Yeah, that that's what I usually run into. Actually, the the more difficult part for me is like with keyword args, you can input the same one multiple times because it's not like a map or a hash where you have one key that can be over there. That's the more difficult part. So if you write it one value and it's second value, I mean, I guess it takes the first one. It depends on how you how you work with it. Yeah, when, when you when you do get, so, it takes the first one. But the like for example, key, the keyword module also has a function to get all values of a certain key. And I've actually used this. Like I, I had a, I don't remember the exact scenario. Basically, for what was for, for passing some options, and you could specify it to not just take the value of the options, right? but to, for example, look at the system by having the system tuple, but or to like look at the application config. And then it basically was an order of importance. So it said, okay, like it tries all each of these and until it finds actually a value, until one of these actually resolved to a value. So I've used it for that purpose to say, okay, but please take uh, this option and then maybe take a value from the system, maybe take it from the configuration, maybe take it some, from somewhere else. And then at the very end, if nothing is resolving then just use this default value so i've used it for that but yeah it's like it's unusual like and you really and i feel like the syntactic sugar about keywords and functions makes it actually harder to figure that out like it's nice to write but when you don't know that this is under the hood yeah. list and just the list it's like a fancy list nothing else it's like a list of tuples then this can really yeah confuse the heck out of you yeah. i would actually be curious if like jose would still do the same design decision now regarding keyword list and syntactic sugar, but as or if like his opinion changed on that, like if you would if you basically would design Elixir and you, if you would still do that, would be curious to hear. I mean, doesn't like but a lot of like for example like do blocks that you pass to quotes and stuff, right? They kind of rely on that syntactic sugar. You could still pass it as like a like yeah, a true. keyword list itself, but I, I think I think a lot of things kind of do rely on it. I can't think of more right now. Maybe but, maybe um, he would now use maps because I mean, when he originally envisioned it, right, right. maps were not a thing. Like they only yeah. were added later. So maybe right. maybe now mm-hmm. Elixir, like, but Intactic Sugar would actually be boiled down to maps that, that would probably make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. If I remember correctly, these keyword arcs, they're actually from Erlang necessarily, right? Yeah. Because the, like they had no no structs, they had no objects, no maps. Yeah. Even they had to come up with a way to how can you model something. Yes, exactly. They they're like an mm-hmm. inherited from Erlang. Like I think I, prob- I would bet money on that. Like probably if if you would design Elixir now, it would probably be maps. So maybe yeah. that's like an Elixir two point thing, right? Like maybe that's like where they say, okay, now we actually <laughs> is a breaking change, and this keyword with, mm-hmm. with, with syntactic sugar is now maps under the hood. Yeah, that would be interesting to to look at. Okay, so. Can anybody explain to me how come we don't use records instead of using structs? Is there a good reason why? 
probably support. I don't know. Like, I mean, for, for explanation here, records is basically like tag tuples. For, like, so you have the okay tuple, you have error tuple, right? And records are like, okay, now I, I the first element of my tuple is like the name of the record and then the fields after it are just like inside the other fields of, of, of the tuple. So that's like what a record is. And this is like something which, which Erlang basically does instead of structs. And there's also like some support for records in Elixir, but it's more, for more for it understood, it's more for like interoperability with Erlang, where you say, hey, this module is like representing a certain record and that record name is that. I want to just encapsulate everything in this module instead of like dealing with it all over my code base. Yeah. I guess I felt a, a bit behind the development of, uh, of the ecosystem of Elixir now, but so I remember Elixir having structs. So you you define this special module, which is a dev struct and, and stuff. But what are records then? Yeah, records, records, basically uh, Erlang's version of structs. So okay. like what Erlang does there is like it's a tuple. It's a tuple of, uh, with multiple elements. And the first element in the tuple is the name of a record. So like how okay. in Elixir a struct is basically like a fancy map with like this underscore underscore struct yeah. key underscore underscore and then like the name mm-hmm. of the struct. In a record you have a tuple of like the first value being the name of, of a record and then the fields being in a specific position after that. So like field one is position two, field uh, two is position three, and so on and so forth. Isn't that like in Erlang, uh, isn't there a syntactic sugar for these records as you start with this hashtag? I, yeah, maybe. I, to be honest, I've, I've, I've read Erlang, but I've not written it. So I can't say for sure. Okay. Yeah, no, this is, you're right. I've seen, I was just looking at the other screen I have. Yeah, it's, this is correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I didn't knew that like Erlang implemented it differently than Elixir. I would actually be curious why. Like, I mean, I I thought they interoperate a bit. I mean, like they discuss like, well, what what should we do because like Elixir is one of the biggest like front ends basically yeah. for. I think there's like, I mean, maybe the, because there's some limi- some limitations on uh, tuples. I think that, for example, there's like a max length tuple, right? It, which is also 200 something. Uh, so maybe mm-hmm. that's like one of the reasons they said, okay, let's maybe not go for uh, for two, uh, for uh, records and tuples, but instead let's do maps for, for structs. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's, that's the reason why. But now we are just, it's all conjecture, right? <laughs> well, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how, how these records went from Erlang will work in a yeah, I do know that there is like a, a module to help you with that. When like when you actually have to work with records, you, there is like a module to help. But mm-hmm. I've like I've done it once, but that's like probably three or four years ago. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's really only there to like ease integrating with, for example, Erlang libraries, which might rely on records instead of uh, structs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then there's always the issue of when Erlang has to deal with Elixir structs, which don't also look very nice too because actually what's underneath is that underscore underscore struct kind of key which looks nasty i think yeah then you also always have to match on the elixir namespace thing in erlang right because all modules mm-hmm. in elixir are the prefixed with elixir dot because just to make sure yeah. that it's not colliding with anything yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's that's fun <laughs> yeah i think also like one thing that i'm kind of missing in the uh, in elixir is like uh, the richness of uh, standard library. So it, it does have some stuff in there, which is nice. But I mean, uh, coming from Python, where you basically can do anything with a standard library that there is in there, like it's not quite the same. Yeah, I think most of that is actually by design. Like I think the the folks yeah, from, from the Elixir core team were very conscious about what to add to the standard library. A, a lot mm-hmm. of the things which are, for example, now maybe in Phoenix or also maybe, maybe have made it into a standard library were first just libraries, like user land libraries out there. And I mean, at the end of the day, if it's in the standard library, you gotta ma- gotta maintain it, right? <laughs> you gotta yeah. maintain yeah, it. That's right. Like it's it's a trade-off. It's one of the big headaches for for Python development community. So yeah, they have to maintain this huge thing, and especially when they try to deprecate some old libraries that no one's using, but there are like five users and yeah. shit. We have to keep it. So exactly, yeah. and, and I feel like the core team is very conscious about that sort of maintainability burden. Mm-hmm. I mean, after all, I think like a lot of VVV story is when you compare it, for example, Python standard library and Elixir standard library, I mean, Python didn't really have a built-in package manager. Right? Like that's all what, what, yeah. which came after. And Elixir from the get-go basically had support for hex packages. Yeah. So it's easier to say, hey, 
just build as a package and use it instead of relying on the standard library when you mm -hmm. have a functional package manager. <laughs> yeah, actually, like that's one thing that I'm missing. For example, in Python or other languages, is like the mix tool. It's like so good. Yeah. <laughs> Like I can build the software. I have uh, like the template, the scaffolding of how the project should look like. I have all these nice things and like the mix EXS file where I define everything that I need. And then when I have to write Python, okay, how should I structure my project? Yeah, yeah. like I think a great thing the core team has done there is that they dog food a lot of what the community also has for documentation and so on and so forth. I mean, the documentation of a standard library is on hexdocs.pm, which is also the place where the documentation for userland libraries are. So it's like, mm -hmm. there's like no special treatment for this. It's like all, yeah. all the same, which then makes the burden to say, hey, people, if, you don't, if you're missing something, then why don't you write a package and document it out there? It's a lot lower because there's like not, Two, two levels, uh, like not like a elevated, nice level of, of standard library-ness and like uh, we, every, everybody else has to deal with a crappy user-led experience. Like, no, that's, that's not how it is, right? So, yeah. But I, at the end of the day, all, all is a trade-off, right? Like, I feel like the, the trade-off here is worth it, especially now in the latest, latest version before that where we got mix installs. So, like, now you can also write Elixir right. scripts and like, install packages and use packages inside of Elixir scripts, which I feel is, like, super powerful. And, like, basically, like, now it feels like you have the whole Elixir ecosystem at your fingertips, even for simple scripts. I forgot where I was going with this. But... <laughs> But yeah, like I said, it's like a lot of these design decisions have been made very consciously, very deliberately. But at the end of the day, it's always trade-offs. Like you, you lose some, you get mm -hmm. some. Yeah. So, but okay, for for how much time are you all like writing Elixir? So how, how did your Elixir journey started? Not sure if you, if you want to get into that. I'm going to make this short answer. Short answer is like five years, I think, ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, five years sounds about right. And it was just, I was started at a company which was using Elixir. So I learned it. Then I started to love it. And then okay. I decided I want to stick to that. And after that, specifically looked for jobs where I could keep doing Elixir. <laughs> Nice. I essentially started as an Elixir engineer. So six years at that point, I think Phoenix 1.0 had just come out, but mm -hmm. three of our first projects were without Phoenix, which uh, really helped me learn like plug and you know, just the underlying details of Elixir. This is the part where I have to explain yes. myself. I don't even know what. Yes, please. It's, uh, the question is what, like, how long have been using it for? Or I didn't quite understand yeah, the question. How, how, how did you start using it? I mean, originally, I've always been fascinated with concurrency and parallelism, but I didn't really know. I mean, it's always kind of a tricky word, right? So mm -hmm. I started using Go. And I thought it was kind of cool, but at the same time, I didn't like going from string to byte array, byte array to string 50 times before I got done with a single request. And yeah, and then I, I kept hearing about Elixir and then, yeah, I just said, okay, let me check this out. And I saw it has really great parallelism and, and concurrency. And I was like, okay, let's, that was the first thing that really got me hooked because I wanted to do some stuff with scraping data mm -hmm. uh, concurrently and in parallel for uh, potentially with somebody. It didn't work out, but in the end, like I'm happy that I, I got into uh, Elixir. I think it's a fantastic tool. It's helped me a lot. So, mm -hmm. yeah, for me, I remember. So uh, I was a first year computer science uh, student. So I, I didn't knew pretty pretty much nothing. So I was like, okay, so here is C, here is Python. I've heard about Java, and then I remember. So I saw some ads on Facebook from TopTal about some some of their blog posts about Elixir. And I was like, why would you put an ad about the <laughs> language? So what's going on? And I was pretty skeptic about that. And after also a few months, I also was reading some stuff on Wikipedia about, uh, I think it was about folds or about maps. And I saw some code examples in Elixir and I was like, wait, so, so is this like a real thing? Okay, let me check it out. And then when I saw the syntax of it, I also, I remember it, I think I saw it on Learn X in Y minutes. So this like site, I was like, oh, wow, actually it's pretty nice. So, and by that point, I also knew at least a bit of programming and I, I could know like what's really nice and what's not so much. So I was impressed and I planned to do a, a pet project, but I, so I haven't had the time for it for about a year. And then my first pet project I remember was to design and so a, a simple to do app 
basically, uh, just the API. And I was planning to use also to, to embed it in a Docker container. And I wanted to do it with Phoenix initially. But when I saw like, for me, at least Phoenix resembles a bit like projects like Django or uh, Ruby on Rails, which are like very huge. They can do anything, but I liked a more lean approach. So in Python, I, for example, I usually use Flask and I'm used to just, okay, just handle, give me these handles and like get out of the way. So I designed it with Plug and I, I liked it a lot. It was a, a bit of a hustle to put it in Docker containers, but I handled that also. And so basically from that point, I uh, started uh, playing around with Elixir. And also there was a fun thing back in the day. So basically it was 2017 now. yeah. And I was looking for a job and a local company, a fintech company, which had their backend in Ruby, they were thinking about switching some services from Ruby to Elixir. But in Moldova, there are close to none developers like elixir developers and after this uh, pet project of mine i knew a few guys in there and i was like hey maybe you could consider me for for the position at least as a junior and maybe you have a few seniors in there so they thought about it and they were like well we need some strong developers to do this switch so maybe not and a few months after that, I was hired uh, for the first time. I was hired as a machine learning engineer. And so my path from Elixir diverged. Maybe if they did hire me, I wouldn't be a machine learning engineer. But yeah, but maybe you would be running the show, man, Alex. <laughs> 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 okay, folks, is there anything else you'd like to discuss us before we, we diverge even more from the topic? I would rather transition us to picks. I would just want to mention this, Alex, you said you're doing machine learning, you like mathematics and stuff. Elixir, just this year, Jose built something called NX. You might want to check yeah, that out. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah. Okay. I mean, awesome. Yeah, it, it looks pretty nice. And I, I love the fact that he decided to use as a backend this whole JAX thing from Google, which is like a low level, like intermediate representation. So basically, he can now focus just on, on the developer experience of this tooling and not to bother with low-level stuff. Right. So that's pretty nice. Uh, I saw a few examples, but I'm still waiting for it to, to mature a bit more. Yeah, it's very early. Uh, maybe, so I, I was thinking uh, maybe, so it's not yet the time to write like the, the experiment code in Elixir, but it would be a pretty nice experience to develop some serving infrastructure for machine learning. So basically, when you put your models in production, because I think the concurrent nature of uh, Elixir could make it interesting and also challenging, because again, so mm, Erlang VM is not really used to do like serious number crunching. It's more about concurrency, fast switching. So it would be an interesting thing to see. Yeah, that's usually like the, then where like this unofficial marriage between Rust and Elixir comes into play, right? Like <laughs> because they, they, these two languages yeah. complement each other very well. Yeah, because writing it in C, so it, it would be like too painful, and uh, given the, the strong guarantees that Rust gives, yeah, Rust would be a, a much better uh, tool for for all this low level so matrix. Things. Yeah, I, I don't want to get into details, but like I think one of the main reasons is that like Rust doesn't crash where C might crash, and if like a NIF crashes, yeah. it brings also down the VM. So that's why usually yeah. people go with Rust instead of like C or plus. Hey, folks! If you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production. And you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Okay, um, so let's go over to picks. And Alan, why don't you start us off with your new Rust book, which we all <laughs> already heard that you have a new one. Yeah, I think this is a new one. I don't think I mentioned this one before, but it's called Rust for Rust Stations. So there's just a lot of books out there that are kind of beginner content if you're interested in Rust. Mm -hmm. But there's very, very few intermediate ones. This one is definitely a very, very good intermediate book. It's written by a pretty... Pretty popular guy on YouTube. He also runs the Rustation Station podcast. I just dropped into the chat. Anyways, to me, this is also the first book where I read it and my mind is blown away, like literally, because I don't know what he's talking about. There's a lot of stuff I had to kind of go back to CS fundamentals, talking about covariance and these kind of topics. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, if you want to get more into like theory and like why you should write 
rust in a certain way and things like that. It's definitely up your alley in that in that case. And yeah, it's also helped me to think a lot more about when I start writing my Rust code, how I should write it. So yeah, that's my pick. Nice. Adi, what do you pick this week? Yeah, so I actually was talking with one of the listeners last month, and they said I never have a non-tech, non-elixir pick. So I'm gonna, or a non-job pick. So I'm gonna have a completely unrelated pick. So I tried this coffee uh, last week. Uh, it's it's like produced by like a Native American tribe called Ogapa Coffee. It's they have amazing variety, and the quality of beans was just awesome. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, it's yeah, worth everyone's try for sure. The link will be in the description. How is it called again? Ogapa. It's actually a Native American tribe. Ogapa. Nice. Okay. That's definitely not a tech and not a hiring pick. <laughs> not a job <laughs> pick. Cool. Very cool. So yeah, my, my picks this week are also not related to tech or Elixir. Main reason is that I'm currently on parent leave, so I'm not doing a whole lot of coding. I'm mostly doing parenting. Um, but I'm basically what I'm going to pick is I'm going to pick my two Christmas presents because they're both gifts and gifts I, I, I wished for. And one is a book called Immune. And they... It, it, oh, I have yeah, it. Yeah, I have it too. Like it's, it's, it's written by the guy who created the YouTube channel Kurzgesagt. And if you don't know Kurzgesagt, I, I don't know what to say. Check it out. It's like the it's arguably like the best science education channel on YouTube. Like by like really really great. They have like a what three thirty million subscribers. Like they're really really big now. And and they have like they have a whole bunch of uh, videos on the immune system. And it. While while they were making those, like the, the guy like, behind Kutzak we was like, it's not possible to capture all of that information about the immune system inside of videos. Just the format is too short. And so he wrote this book, which like, contains all of that knowledge and all of that Kutzak goodness of like compressing science topics into like easily digestible and understandable um, chunks. And yeah, it's like, I'm not even halfway through it, but it's already been a pleasure to read it. So like, uh, I, I, if you enjoy Kutzak, you should really check it out. And the other thing is more fun, less science is if um, Gravity Falls Lost Legends, which is a comic book. And if you ever saw Gravity Falls, which is arguably, I think, one of the best animated series out there, uh, there is a comic book written by Alex Hirsch, which, which is the like the guy who ca- originally came up with Gravity Falls. It's like a four new stories inside of the Gravity Falls universe. So if you're like me and you watched the series and you were sad when it was over, there's more, a little bit more. <laughs> And, and I already finished that one. I finished it basically over the next day. Uh, and it was a lot of fun and a lot of gravity faultiness. So those are my two picks. Okay, Alex, what are your picks? Any picks? Yeah. So for me, also just a bit related to, to Kurzgesagt video, videos, especially I think it was the last one. So basically there is this Chinese author, Lu or Lu. I don't really know how to spell Chinese names. And he has a trilogy of books, so it's called the, the Free Body Problem books. Basically, now I'm at the last one. So the first book is uh, Free Body, Pro- The Free Body Problem. The second is The Dark Forest. And the third one is called uh, Death's End. So basically, I'm at the third book. And I'm not really a fan of fiction literature. So I'm, I'm, I'm more of a guy who will read non- non-fiction. But boy, these books are amazing. So... so I can't really recall when was the last time when I started reading a book kind of at midnight, well, after I'm done with all my stuff. And then I, I find myself like seven in the morning and I'm like, God, I have to go to sleep. So I, I have to stop here and, and I'll continue next day. So the books are really amazing and I would definitely recommend everyone to, to read them. So yeah. I've actually read the first book and I've started the second, but I bought the second in English instead of my mother tongue German because it wasn't out yet. And I'm good with English, but when when I'm on recreational time, I'm like, nah, now my brain, I I just want to read this in my mother tongue. (laughs) So I never finished it. Yeah, the second book, uh, Dark Forest, so almost like first 150 pages were like more... um, I don't know, cumbersome to read. So I remember I was struggling, struggling a bit to to go from them. But then the action begins, and I, I was like, like, 
wow. Nice. <laughs> Every like 50 or 70 pages or so. And then Death's End, like it, it, it keeps you on edge always. So I'm I'm half through it and I, I have like a, a couple of uh, wows mm-hmm. per reading session. No, 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 no. I might have to pick it up. Add it again to my never ending list of things I want to read. <laughs> okay nice thank, thank you for all these picks Alex okay um, and if people want to reach you how, how do they do it if you have any questions well I guess Twitter or LinkedIn would be the, the best picks so on Twitter I'm Alex Burlaku 96 no wait let, let me check <laughs> I haven't checked Twitter for quite some time from uh, browser so so Alex Burlaku 19 96. Well, I don't know if <laughs> how would be a better way to to show you the spelling. Uh, we're just going to put a link of it in the show notes. So. Oh, okay, okay, then super nice, and uh, also LinkedIn. So also for LinkedIn, I guess uh, I'll just send the link to. So yeah. All right. For me, these two would be my best picks. Nice. Um, then thank you for being on the show, Alex. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure for me too. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of very niche stuff about Elixir, so I'll have to check more after the show. Yeah, but I hope it didn't run completely over your head or, or over the heads of our no, listeners. I, I, I try to like keep it on this level of like make it understandable <laughs> and like explaining stuff. Like that was fine, Adi. I mean, I feel like we hit the sweet spot of like, wait, what is this? And then maybe people can yeah. research more, right? So and, and now also out to the listeners, like if you want to have some questions on Elixir and all of this stuff, I mean, Adi and me are both like on Twitter and you can find us and reach us there. So always happy to chat about Elixir. So yeah. Um, I only want to know where's the method missing? That's the one I, I can, want. <laughs> I can send you a link like on Discord later. <laughs> okay. Uh, then yeah, thanks again for, for being here, Alex. Thanks again for listening to this episode, folks. And tune in next time when we have another episode of Elixir Mix. Bye-bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.